Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring President Scott L. Wyatt of Southern Utah University. I'm Steve Meredith, your host, and I'm joined, as usual, by President Wyatt. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Steve. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming Winter Olympics, and we're going to do so with an expert in the field. Dr. Dave Lunt is from our history department and has a specialty in Greek history and also in Olympic and athletic history. And uh, so I'll let you and I'll let you in further introduce Dave, and uh, uh, and we'll talk about this very very interesting and timely subject. So this is one of the real uh, fun pieces of being uh, on a university campus every day is that you've got some of the most fascinating people that have studied the most interesting things. And uh, some days I wish I could just abandon my job and just wander around and talk to faculty members <laughs> because there's so much, there is so much to learn. And I think that I should be setting an example about learning instead of just uh, sitting in my office working all the time. <laughs> anyway, so uh, we are right on the edge of the Olympics. And um, Dr. Lund, this is one of your areas. This is uh, your specialty. Why don't you start us out by telling us how the Olympics began? I'd be happy to. Uh, good morning, Steve. Good morning, President Wyatt. Uh, the Olympics began uh, historically, you know, the classical date is 776 BC. Um, a guy named Hippias of Elis in ancient Greek came up with that number, although he didn't use BC, right? But he tried to add up all of the ancient athletics you know, championships and figure out how many Olympiads there had been. The archaeology at Olympia suggests a much later date, uh, around 600 BC is when the games really got going. But either way, whether it's 776 or 600 something, uh, it's a long run, right? The Olympics started out small. They were always a festival to Zeus, uh, worshiping, you know, the big chief Mount Olympus deity, um, and the, the games were an appendage to this bigger religious festival. And over time, the games got more popular, short of what I think we've, we've seen today with the modern Olympic movement. The games grow bigger and bigger, and they add more and more events and more and more places where people can celebrate you know, games to Zeus or games to Apollo or um, games to Poseidon. And over time, they, they gained great cultural relevance and value and, and vic, you know, victors were honored in their cities and they got big awards and memories and statues and all sorts of glory sort of heaped upon them. So um, from about 600 BC is our latest date and maybe even earlier. They were going uh, every four years at Olympia and then at other places every single year. And they they wrap up in the in the fourth century of you know the A.D. or, or Common Era. Um, there's an emperor of Rome, Theodosius, who decides that it's probably not a good idea for a Christian empire to be holding festivals to the pagan gods, and so he orders all the temples, all the games, all the festivals to be closed down and shut down. And that's that's the end of the Olympic movement. But it had about a thousand year run where it was a big deal. Um, you know, made it through wars and upheavals and earthquakes and. Uh, the, the Roman conquest and all sorts of stuff, but the Olympics 
remained, I don't know, relatively stable uh, in terms of an institution that lasts for a thousand years. I have a hard time thinking of something that lasted a thousand years that's still around today that, with relatively few interruptions. A thousand years, same, same festival, same peoples. Uh, that is really pretty amazing. Yeah, um, they do open it up to Romans. Originally, only Greeks can compete in the Olympic Games. Um, today, the Olympics are all about inclusivity, right, for all peoples all over the earth. Um, but the Greeks, the Olympic Games were for, for the Greeks. Uh, eventually, the Romans can come in when, when Rome conquers Greece. But the Greeks, uh, you know, they have a very strong sense of identity with their city, where they're from, not their not their bigger ethnicity, I guess we'd say, their their homeland or their country. They, they believe in their city. And so in that sense, they very much are international um, in the Greek sense because they're from different cities that are all independent countries, fiercely independent. And we see some of the rivalries play out that you might anticipate among, you know, city-states that are in contention for power or economic resources or, you know, whatever the issues of the day were. Um, but yeah, it's basically the Greeks, uh, men only, uh, could attend or watch. There are a couple of exceptions where certain women and uh, priestess of Dem- uh, Demeter could come and, and watch. But generally speaking, uh, men only, it was for males, I guess we'll say, uh, boys and men could compete and watch at Olympia. Although anybody could come to the big, you know, sacrifices and stuff, but the games were reserved for, for men and males. Was this kind of like uh, high school rivalries? Um, it would be kind of like high school rivalries. You know, we have our local high school rivalry here where I grew up in a high school with a with a rival. But I think it would be a little more intense because the stakes were high, right? Like they are in the sense of, of close together proximity. Uh, we think of, you know, Athens and Sparta as being big rivals in war in the 5th century BC. But um, really, it's Argos and Sparta. Those guys cannot stand each other. And they're, they're, as the crow flies, they're pretty close together. They're close communities. They know each other. They fought. There's a lot of ego on the line. Absolutely. Do we, do we know a lot about, I mean, you see ancient sculptures and so forth of discus and javelin. Do we know, do we know uh, a lot of what went on in terms of the actual sports they uh, competed in? That's a perfect uh, question, Steve. It's like you, you, your artistic background is showing through there because when uh, in the 19th century, when Europeans uh, were trying to revive the Olympic Games, we do have a list of events that were competed. And like I said, over time they grew and occasionally an event didn't work and so they cut it out and um, you know they would tinker with the program. But something like the discus was part of a bigger program called the pentathlon, right? The five contest uh, event it would be uh, you know running and throwing the javelin and long jumping and, and discus and there was wrestling in there too those are the five events and um, in modern times at least this is what I've read there was no discus um, until people wanted to revive what the Greeks were doing and there's this very, you know we have we have sculptures and vase paintings but there's this very famous sculpture uh, the original is gone but the discobolos of Myron right the they show it at the Olympics all the time, right? The, the naked athlete with his hand mm-hmm. on his knee and the, the discus kind of cocked behind him. Um, and so modern Europeans, by modern, I mean 19th century, they looked at that statue and said, we should do that. 
and they tried to figure out how to do this sport based on these pictures. And so we're not sure if what we're doing with the discus is the same as what the ancient Greeks were. Other things are a little different too, like the javelin, they used a a little leather strap to help with accuracy, which you know, makes sense in a time period when you would throw spears as part of your warfare. But accuracy mattered, not just distance. And the discus in myth, anyway, is a dangerous event. There's all sorts of stories of people getting hit in the head by a discus and, and uh, you know, all shenanigans ensue. So uh, we think we know most of the program. Uh, there's running events, various distances. The ancient Greek state or stadion is the, the Latinized form. A stadium, I guess. Um, it's about 180 yards for for our measurements. That's you know almost two football fields, I guess. Um, and that would be the running distance. You'd be a, you know one length, two lengths, a, a long distance. Um, I guess several lengths, 24 lengths, something like that. Uh, there would be wrestling and boxing. There was a, a combat sport called called pancration. This is a uh, the the word means all powerful, and it. it suggests uh, it was i guess like no holds barred fighting what we might call you know ufc or mma or something like this there were a the couple of, of death yeah, yeah but there's no there's no rounds there's no timers hmm. right there's no weight classes so it's you know there's boys and men but when you leave being a boy to becoming a man is a you know that's for the judges to decide there's no birth certificates or dna testing or drug testing and so, uh, so these guys, you know, some of the, the stories we hear of these heavy event athletes, these boxers and Pancratius, uh, they're monsters. They're monster humans who, um, you know, they fight for a living. Um, this idea of amateurism is a modern one. The ancient Greeks, this is their job. Uh, they, they would go in there and, and battle until someone gave up or someone was unconscious or um, in wrestling until you threw your opponent. The, the other, if I, I don't know, if I'll keep going here. The other big event or big category of events would be the equestrian events. And this is, you know, we do have equestrian stuff at the Olympics today, but it's, you know, dressage or, or sort of judged events or jumping over, you know, little obstacles. But this was horse racing, and the Greeks loved mm. this. Um, we don't have any evidence for gambling, but I, I suspect there was a lot of that going on, <laughs> at least informally. Uh, but... The horse racing uh, was a big part of it, and and the winner of the of the horse race would be the owner of the horses, not the the driver of the chariot or the horse. There was a horse race or a two ch- two horse chariot, four horse chariot, or or whatever. But this was among the most prestigious of the events because it took a lot of money. Uh, you know, like I guess like today, horse racing is the sport of kings, and in ancient Greek times, um, the horse racing events were very very popular, and this is. The one event that was open to women, because as the owner of the horses, you don't have to actually attend. So we have a couple of records of women who win Olympic championships in chariot racing, but didn't even show up to watch. weren't allowed to show up. So chariot racing was one of the events. Yeah, so uh, different kinds of chariots. Uh, two uh, two horse chariots, four horse chariots. Uh, for a while, there's a donkey cart event, but apparently that wasn't as popular. There's not at Olympia, but in other places, there was an event that I always think sounds kind of fun where um, they would, this is at Athens, but they would ride their horses and then the jockeys had to get off and run next to their horses for a distance and then get back on. So it wasn't just riding, it was, you had to be kind of quick too. Um, all sorts of creative uh, 
activities, I guess, to, to see what kind of other events they could come up with, all for the honor of Zeus. It'd be fun to see uh, chariot races come back. I, I would love that. Those are powerful kinds of races. They just, at least when Cecil B. DeMille's puts it on, it looks pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, they're great TV. Even if you watch um, you know, some of the, the trotters today, um, they're exciting. Uh, and there's always the potential for, for mayhem, which I think, you know, unfortunately, maybe, or fortunately, but um, people might get hurt, and that draws people's eyeballs, too. Yeah, I have friends that are chariot racers. Really? Yeah. Um, one guy that I used to work with does a lot of chariot racing. Really? Yeah. Well, so, so um, this thing goes away. It goes away because it's inappropriate in a Christian world to be doing these games in honor of pagan gods. How does it start back up? So there's a couple of, um, I guess we'll say, false starts uh, where people have the idea. It's not like the Olympic Games are lost to history. Um, there's uh, a guy named Zappas uh, who tries to revive the Olympic Games in Greece in the 1800s. Greece is dominated or controlled or owned or however you want to call this, occupied by the Ottoman Turks for several hundred years. Um, but in the 1800s, 1829, I guess, is when we'll call the Greek independence. Greece asserts its independence, wins a war, and, and uh, they're searching around for an identity. Greece has never been a unified country. Even in ancient times, each city was a rival with each other. And so some of these early Greeks tried to, uh, these early Olympic Games are attempts to unify the Greeks in a sense of we're all doing this together. The Zappos Olympics, as they're called, they don't really work. They don't really take off. It's not until a Frenchman uh, named Pierre de Coubertin, um, and you know, there's some others involved too um, from England, but he is enamored of the English uh, education system that emphasizes physical, physical education that's coming out of the second half of the 19th century and some of the, some of the fears of industrialization and some of the worries about you know, young men growing up soft and what are we going to do with our, how are we going to train aristocratic leaders? And in the wake of the Franco-Prussian War that goes very badly for France, Pierre de Coubertin says, we need to figure out a better way to train our young people to be better leaders and better prepared for war, and maybe we can you know, defuse future international problems. And so this brainchild, I said it's not just Coubertin, but he gets most of the credit. But in 1896, uh, the first modern Olympic Games are held in Athens, and uh, they're supposed to be a revival of the Olympic spirit which right away you have to go, well, Olympia is a place. It's not an adjective, right? Like, they're the <laughs> Athenian games in Athens, but that's not what it's about. By, the, by, by modern times, we've transformed this notion of what Olympic means, not just a place, but it has to do with these set of ideals that are largely rooted in 19th century interpretations of, of uh, ancient Greece. And so the 19th century had this strong belief in um, aristocratic privilege, uh, that young men especially are, are supposed to grow up to be leaders in, in the aristocratic ranks, and they're supposed to learn how to solve problems and command um, others and, and otherwise, you know, engage in diplomacy. And so the modern Olympics are viewed as a way of training young people, young men, to meet young people from other countries. And, you know, maybe down the road that'll prevent a war or help diplomacy or, or otherwise, you know, inculcate inculcate correct values about oh 
beauty and, and the spirit of camaraderie and, and competition is good, but in the sense of it being a sort of wholesome activity, win at all costs is not part of the modern Olympic movement in the 1800s. It's, it's about competing nobly and, and winning and having you know, good sportsmanship and uh, respecting your rival. These are the ideals, and they, they sound pretty good. Um, but that's not how it worked out right uh and also in the early olympics there's a strong commitment and by early olympics i mean the early modern there's a strong commitment to uh, artistic values too so beauty not just uh sport is one of the the sort of fundamental principles of olympism and there was a olympic art contest and you could win a olympic gold medal for producing a work of art uh, up until the 19 well, I say the 1930s, I think, is the last time. Uh, around the time of Los Angeles is when that was discontinued. So uh, it's supposed to be, you know, treating, you know, teaching people a more wholesome, well-rounded approach. But fairly early on, um, that gets derailed by people Competition who... Competition comes who, in. Yeah, you want to yeah. win, right? It's hard to compete without trying. So the first Olympics, um, 1896... When did we start with Winter Olympics? The first Winter Olympics, the they're called the official name is the Olympic Winter Games because Olympic Winter Games. I, I'm not correcting you. I'm just you. You might hear this this referred to if you watch it on television or, or you know read reports on this. Uh, in 1924, or you know in the years leading up to the 1924 Olympics, which were held in Paris, uh, there's a strong desire that people are saying, "Hey, let's." Let's get some other sports involved. France has a really strong, you know, winter sport uh, history, right? It has the Alps and uh, countries of Sweden and uh, Norway are saying, yeah, we, you know, skiing and, and skating, that's, that's sort of our bread and butter. And we can't really do that in the summertime in Paris. And so the decision is made to sort of create this um, Week of winter sports is what they start calling it as early as, you know, 1921-22 in their meetings. They're going to plan out more sports. And, and this is something, I don't know, maybe it's, it's less interesting, but in the early Olympic period, right, the Olympics have not always been this big money-making venture, you know, for uh, two and a half weeks of, of immense pageantry. Something like the, the 1904 games in St. Louis, they lasted all summer. And people kind of coming and going, people couldn't travel as well. Uh, you would have some events in the early summer, others in the late summer. It's much more of a sort of drawn-out affair rather than just the Olympics. Uh, they weren't big money makers. They didn't have tourists. They obviously didn't have television or radio um, in these early Olympic periods. And so they were the first few Olympics after uh, 1896 were held in conjunction with World's Fairs. And the World's Fairs would go all summer, too. So in 1924, they're saying, you know, for the 1924, they want to have these other sports on display. And this is, I was reading some of the uh, the IOC minutes earlier, you know, getting ready for this. And this one made me laugh because one of the representatives to the International Olympic Committee from Great Britain said, you know what would be great to do during this week of winter sports is we should have, you know, soccer. We have this soccer competition. You know, he's calling it football, right? Mm. Um, because no one wants to play soccer in in the middle of July, right? And, you know, so it just shows how open-minded they are about, you know, there's no sense of we're only skiing and sledding and, and skating, but that's, that's how it ended up. In 1924, the, at Chamonix uh, in France, there was this appendage to the, 
the games of the 1924 Olympics, um, the Olympic Winter Games. And then uh, fairly soon after, they said, well, these need to be their own thing and have their own sort of separate venue because there aren't very many countries that could host both um, kinds of things. So 1924 is the first, uh, I guess we'll say, Olympic Winter Games. And they probably, you know, it should be obvious, I hope, that they don't have uh, winter games in ancient times. Uh, this is purely a, a modern convention. So that's been going on less than 100 years. Yeah. Literally. In the modern. Yeah, absolutely. What is that, 80-something 80, 80 years by now, 90 maybe. So what are, let's, let's, uh, let's fast forward. It's tempting to jump through all the really, really interesting times. Um, in my life, the most memorable Olympics was the 1980 Miracle on Ice. That was, that was something. And I was a first-year college student when that happened. Yeah. Um, but let's and, jump and politically. So oh, politically, yeah. You know, in that time in the United States. And then there's been a lot of really interesting uh, books come out about the Olympics leading up to World War II. The Boys in the Boat um, is is one that I just recently read that was fun to read. So there's been a lot of really interesting times, hasn't there? Absolutely. You're, you're older than you look, President Wyatt, if you remember 1980. Um, I remember. Bravo. Yeah, I remember so that. That's, Unfortunately, very clearly. <laughs> uh, I was alive, but I, don't, I, I didn't watch on TV. I was too young. But, um, well, it's, this, is a, this is a podcast, so you can't see my gray hair and your brown hair. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but from the you know even going back to ancient greece this idea of international rivalry is is a strong part of what of what the modern olympics is a, is about and so as you mentioned the the build up to world war 2 that probably the most written about and this is anecdotal i can't you know back this up but just in terms of looking through the literature the most written about modern olympic games are the 1936 games um, in Germany, right, in Berlin, that sort of showed off. They were a feature showcase for Adolf Hitler's regime. And, you know, most famously from the American point of view is the triumph of Jesse Owens, right? This, right. this uh, you know, non-Aryan, right, this African-American who you know, runs circles around the master race theory is how I say it, you know, literally running in circles uh, as he does laps around the field. Um, and there's been, you know, more recently more, uh, sort of introspection on the United States, looking back on that, because Owens came home and, and uh, you know, was met with Jim Crow segregation and, and some of the problems there, too. So uh, in some ways, he's a pioneer for the Olympic movement, and in other ways, he's a little too early to really benefit from his success. But the Berlin Games are a, a big political platform uh, for the Nazi program. It's also the first games with closed-circuit television, uh, which is sort of, an interesting development as the games were growing more popular after World War II, uh, when television takes off, uh, the games are going to become more and more accessible to, to people throughout the world. But the 1980 game, the Miracle on Ice, right? This is the the American amateurs, right? The college players versus the big, mean, you know, Soviet this professional is how, team. Professional team, right? This is how the the narrative is cast, and there's something to it. Um, so one of the fundamental, I guess benchmarks or, or whatever foundational ideas of, of 19th and early 20th well I guess we'll say most of the 20th century Olympism is this concept of amateurism where it's good to be good at sports 
it's bad to be really good at sports because that means you're taking other things too seriously. And we see this, this still plays out on, you know, college campuses or high schools or whatever. There's other places where amateurism is around. But in the Olympic ideal, you're supposed to not get paid. You're supposed to not be earning a living. Of, of course, everybody's earning a living. But this is why until the 1990s, and it depends on the sport, but, it, you know, the big breakthrough is the 1990s in, in Barcelona when the Americans send their professional basketball players um, to Barcelona, the dream team, right? So in 1980, we still have this concept of American college players, um, but in the Soviet Union, it's a little different. They don't have the sort of college system, right? And we're seeing this as well with the way, you know, China trains its uh, athletes, and I suppose North Korea, although I don't know too much about their programs. I don't know if anyone knows how they do it, but um, this idea of the state, you know, sort of hoovering up huge numbers of young people and training them to pluck out the one virtuoso, um, it sort of flies in the face of what Olympism is supposed to be about, about producing the well-rounded individual. Um, but on the other hand, countries stand to gain a lot of, of uh, international reputation or, you know, they want to flex their Oh, flex their uh, you know muscles, uh, metaphorically speaking, or maybe physically speaking, right? Or or they want to show off the superiority of their system, right? Economic or political systems, and so you know the Americans do this too, but the Soviet system is unique in the sense that the Olympic Committee, the International Olympic Committee, has these long discussions about is the Soviet system really amateurism, right? Because they're they're living in barracks, so to speak, or in you know common housing, and they're trained. They're not paid, but none of these communists are paid. Uh, how does communism work with Olympism? And so this is a more philosophical question, but yeah, that's why the miracle on ice is such a big deal is this, you know, idea of, um, you know, the American democratic ideal, and especially it's in New York, right? Uh, Blake Placid is where this takes place, and, and the Soviets representing the sort of height of the Cold War, you know, and the trained... Um, the trained military trained, athlete. Exactly. Um, versus these, you know, fresh-faced college amateurs. And the Americans win. And it is it is an unlikely victory. It's an amazing victory. Um, most people don't remember that that was not the championship game. Yeah. United States <laughs> still, still had to go out and win another game, which that would have changed the story considerably yeah. if they had had a, a hangover from that. But they didn't. They, they took care of business. And, and uh, that was a great American uh, story's a great Olympic story um, that we see sort of replicated time and again where, you know, you sort of take pride in your country, your country's achievement there. Yeah. And so fast forward till today on Russia. This is an interesting story for the Olympics we're going to see next month. So this is uh, still a developing story. Uh, one of the more amazing developments, you know, that I've watched since I've started, you know, studying Olympic stuff for well, about 15 years now. But the uh, the International Olympic Committee has sort of rescinded, I can't remember the exact terminology, but they've rescinded their recognition of the Russian Organizing Committee, the national, like the USOC, the United States Olympic Committee, that the Russian version of this is not able to participate in anything related to the Olympics. And this stems from the revelation that four years ago at Sochi, uh, the Russian government and organizing committee, Olympic committee, all of these, the, the, the Russian officials engaged in, you know, this is, this is the story coming out, but that they, they engaged in 
wholesale cheating to benefit Russian athletes. There's this big expose. A couple of Russians have come clean and um, pre, you know shown the evidence, and they've been whisked away to you know some version of witness protection. But you know the, the Russians were literally breaking in at night to the laboratories through a back wall and passing the samples you know that the athletes would have to provide and doctoring the samples not necessarily replacing them but doctoring them with things like nescafe which is like instant coffee or, or salt or something and so when they would run the test the test would say yeah there's no chemical in here but then they ran these beta tests these secondary tests and when the allegations came out and they said you know this person's urine has so much salt in it he or she should be dead right like these sort of they've obviously been tampered with and and you know it took government involvement to circumvent the safeguards that are in place and as a punishment the entire um, sort of official apparatus of russia has been disallowed which is unbelievable um to me i mean it's believable because it happened but it's un uh, there's really no precedent for a country this big to be booted uh, from olympic competition and there is you know a loophole for individual russian athletes who can, can petition and demonstrate that they have not been you know cheating or, or taking performance enhancing drugs and they can go before you know a committee and, and sort of certify but you know some of these will be able to compete in upcoming um, olympic competitions but they won't be able to represent their country they'll be you know, sort of wearing, I don't know what yet, some kind of neutral or Olympic colors or something. Uh, free agents. Yeah, free agents. Sort. There, there's a growing, I don't know if it's growing, but there's a movement, it's been around for a little while, advocating that athletes should represent themselves and not countries. They shouldn't actually wear the flag of their country. They should just wear plain uniforms or maybe the Olympic rings or something as a way of defusing um, nationalist rivalries uh it sounds good but it's also i don't know if changing the uniform is going to really change people's perception the ancient greeks same thing they would they had rivalries for their city states right or you know like one group you know you would clearly you would root for your person and they're not wearing uniforms they're competing in the nude so i don't know if i don't know if changing the uniform is gonna gonna make much of a difference but this russia thing is uh this will be an interesting storyline to see how it unfolds in the, the upcoming games here in South Korea. So this really is an interesting question about the, the goals and the ideals of Olympics is that you've got the element of cheating. You've got the element of one of the goals of the Olympics is to bring nations together, and now this is becoming a divisive thing, not a bringing together. What do you think the story is going to be after all this is run? Oh, the future. Um, my students <laughs> come on, sometimes his, come on, historian, <laughs> protect know. the future history. <laughs> yeah, it, it freaks me out, right? It's it's, it's it's against all of my instincts. Um, the story coming out of this is going to be like like other Olympics. I think um, people are going to root for the the storylines. The the personal interests are strong and powerful, and the goals of Olympism they remain noble. The the big problem. You know, this is a this is not my this is not my original thought. Uh, this is identified in the, as early as the '50s and '60s, as television dollars got involved, and then in the '80s, its sponsorships took off, and the Olympics actually became profitable. Maybe not for the host cities, but became profitable for the sponsors. And the big problem is, how do you have an amateur competition that you are selling tickets to, and sponsorships, and commercials, and ads? Right, like this is a fundamental, fundamental conflict 
um, that I don't, I don't see us solving anytime soon. But the personal interest stories will take off. Um, it's a big deal to me that the North Koreans are going to go. Uh, they're going to see South Korea, and they're going to step foot in this sort of territory they pretend doesn't exist or is theirs, but you know, however they view it, um, that's a big step. And we don't, as a, the world doesn't really know what that's going to look like. Um, the Russia thing, you know, the Russian athletes will, they'll compete hard. They're good athletes. They, they've worked hard for this. And if they're, you know, clean or, I don't know, it's naive to think that only the Russians are cheating. But the reason they've been hit so hard is their country was helping them cheat. And um, I don't know, this fundamental idea of you should win, you should not win. I don't know how to reconcile it. I, I'm a... I'm mixed on the Olympics personally. I mean, I'm a little bit of a cynic when I see the, the money involved and the, the expense to host cities and the sort of the way the big facilities fall into disrepair quickly and how ordinary people can't afford tickets and all this stuff. And, and I was, in 2012, I was in Athens and the, the Olympic torch was being passed to, to Great Britain to take to London for the Olympic Games. It was coming out of Greece. And so I, said, I just happened to be there, and I went over to the Panathenaic Stadium, the 1896 stadium where it happened, and I said, oh, I'll watch this, and it was pouring rain, and uh, it was, you know, it was, it was spring or early summer, it was late May, and it was not cold, but it was kind of a miserable day in the rain and the cold, and or the, the marble was cold and slippery, and, and I'm thinking, oh, so... You know, the Olympics are so cheesy, and it's all this fanfare and invented. They had all these people dressed as ancient Greeks, and it was really kind of cheesy. And then the Olympic torch shows up, the rain stops, the sun comes out, a giant rainbow emerges, and I think, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a hard time saying anything bad. The Olympics are compelling. Um, people will watch, and the, the great... The, the the winners, the, the great human interest winning stories, that seems to be the key. you got to win for people to remember you. Um, I think those... The 15 minutes of fame aspect of this has always intrigued me, the, that, that every four years we learn about a random American that we have never heard of and we're likely never to hear of again. I used to, I used to do some work for ABC Sports, and they... They kind of famously created this thing called up close and personal, where we would where we'd learn the background uh, in case this person finishes in the top three. We'd learn a little bit about the background of of this person. I, the, the one I think of the most is Rulon Gardner, um, who you know was a wrestler and beat beat a Russian that had never ever been beaten in his uh, professional or or amateur career, and. Uh, you know, was just this a, is ruling. Uh, yeah, this it, is a kid. Just from Idaho. Just a big Idaho. from from Star Valley, Wyoming. That's right. Wyoming. That's right. And he yeah. beat Alexander Karelin, who never loses, and he he looks like he's not the same species right. as, as I am. Even, I mean, I think Gardner said this. He, Gardner's not a big, strong, strapping. He's a little rounder. Uh -huh. yeah. But yeah, he won, and you know. Yeah, you're right. Immortality. Just, I know his name, but right. I don't remember just, the Just next great person. individual stories. It's so compelling that somebody would be, you know, this is this thing that I do in my life. I'm pretty good at it. And all of a sudden, I'm on the world stage competing against others who do it. How important is this um, idea of uh, athletic heroes today? This is This is your area. This is. And it's something I think about a lot because... 
so the ancient Greeks, the word hero has a pretty specific meaning. I mean, it's vague in a way, but there's a lot of options, but it's someone you worship and this person deserves sacrifices and can intervene in the world of the living after death and has sort of a supernatural status um, that maybe we don't think, you know, you and I, we use the word hero to talk about the firefighter who rescues a child from a burning building, which is heroic, don't get me wrong, but um, it doesn't necessarily have these religious implications. But the idea of someone achieving something that's so amazing that you and I are going to remember it, Rulon Gardner, that's strong. And we use some of the same words, even if we're not um, consciously doing it, but we want to remember. It's really about memory, I think. Um, but we enshrine people, like in a hall of fame or a wall of remembrance. And that's that's a hero word, right? That's a religious word, a shrine. Um, we put statues of them up, whether it's Canton, Ohio, or, or you know, the down at the America First Event Center, right? Like we have little, you know, uh, we have the old letter jackets and the pictures and the trophies and stuff. And so there is a sense of uh, enduring excellence that I think still matters today, even though we're only bobsled fans once every four years. Mm. Um, I think it matters. Um, to in, see the great accomplishments of people, the the overcoming of barriers and the discipline and excellence it takes to to become the best it it there's something about that that still captivates us and motivates us perhaps absolutely and i think i don't know the summer games are are obviously more popular and bigger than the than the winter games and this has to do with countries and how many people can participate but also in ancient greece the most prestigious victory was the one length of the stadium race just the one stat race. Um, and that's the, you got the Olympiad named after you if you won that race. And I've often thought like, why that one? Why is that such a big deal? And this is just my theory. I haven't argued this formally, but I think it's because every, almost everyone has run in their life, right? Like you grow up running if you can as a kid anyway, you remember running for fun or running in a race. And we all know what that, what it takes to run and to run fast. And the idea of being the fastest runner in the world is something that everyone can appreciate. I can kind of appreciate being the fastest figure skater or the fastest skater in the world, I guess, um, speed skater or the fastest bobsledder, but I've never really done that. But everyone's run. And I think that sort of transference of our own identity and saying, what if that was me or I've done something like that, but that is so much better than what I did. Um, I think that matters in a, in a positive way. I think it is a, a good thing for us to, look to excellence and, and to recognize it. Maybe not venerate it, but I think recognition is important. If we pause and think about um, um, our own selves and what humans can accomplish and what we see being accomplished by great athletes, great scholars, great artists, um, hopefully we see in that that our potential is far greater than we sometimes think. I that's, that's a message we want our students at the university to feel, is that their potential far exceeds what they think is possible. And if there's ways to inspire them that direction, um, that's really something that's ennobling. Yeah, that's, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, the ancient Greeks had a word uh, that denoted this kind of excellence and achievement. They called it arete, 
right? This sense of excellence and virtue and just all around greatness and had to do with physical beauty and mental beauty and, phys- you know, prowess and all these ideas kind of tied up in one. And a lot of, and, and athletics is a way of, of, of demonstrating your arete. And some of Plato's dialogues talk about, is arete revealed or can you actually learn it? Can you acquire arete? And, and sometimes I have my students read about this and we have this discussion about getting our arete and where we're going to put it and, you know, this kind of you know, accumulation of, of, of excellence, right, of, of ability. And um, almost always we kind of come down on the side of we're all learning how to become more excellent, right, how to achieve more and, and get greater. And it's, it's, I don't know, from my point of view, it's very rewarding to see the students embrace that idea, this concept of Socrates coming out and. 21st century Cedar City, um, but it's still here, yeah. and it, it, it shows up in the classroom. It shows up on the athletic field. It shows up all over the place. And hopefully as we help our students, and I think families and everybody in the world is striving for this with those that they are closely connected with, uh, hopefully as we teach them that they can do things greater than what they might think, that we can also help them think about the original ideals of the modern Olympics, which is that we use this greatness to bring us together, not to divide us. Something that's occasionally lost uh, in the Olympics. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I don't know. Some of the more endearing images from the Olympics are when the athletes uh, embrace each other or, you know, these sort of international moments of, of uh, friendship and, and, uh, brotherhood and sisterhood there's a great photo from uh, the rio olympics of a couple of korean gymnasts taking a photo together a north korean and a south korean and i don't know that's a that's a heartwarming thing to see it's you know maybe there is something to this idea of pierre de coubertin maybe we can um use the olympic games to to forge closer relationships it takes work though doesn't it it doesn't come naturally yeah i think that's a good way of putting it You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring President Scott L. Wyatt of Southern Utah University. We're very happy to have had our in-studio guest with us, Dr. Dave Lunt from the History Department, talking about the history of the ancient and modern Olympiad. Join us again. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.